Lord, we are once again grateful that we can gather at this hour and sit at your feet and hear from your word to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I pray that would be the effect that this psalm would have upon us this morning and that we would walk away from here thirsty for you as the deer longs for the flowing streams. For in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you read the Psalms, all 150 of them, and they're written by a whole lot of different people, and even though they're all written by a certain number of people in a certain time period, in a certain geography, they really truly span all of human emotions uh, and human experience. That's the reason why the Psalms are in some way a manual to help us understand our own hearts. Because no matter what you've experienced, anger, love, joy, despair, any place on the spectrum, the Psalms lift up that issue of your soul. They look at it, and it analyzes it, and helps us to find a way forward in it. Now, there's a particular condition of the soul that we're talking about today in Psalms 42 and 43. They're actually all one psalm. And there's really, there's a particular refrain within this that occurs three times. And it's a particular issue that every single one of us have at some time in our lives that I will believe will help every single one of us very practically this morning as we walk away from here. So I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to Psalm 42, and you have Psalm 43. We prayed that together in the bulletin this morning. And what we're going to see is, what is this issue at hand? What's the cause of it? And what's the solution? Right? What's the condition? What's the cause? And what's the solution? Psalms is almost a kind of manual for soul doctors. Uh, everybody, of course, has to treat their own soul, and there's times in our lives we treat others as well. And so, what are the issues? What's the cause? And what's the solution? Well, the issue is pretty important, and it's pretty interesting. And actually, if you're going to understand it, you not only have to look at what he says, but also what he doesn't say. There's a whole group of psalms from Psalm 42 to 49, a group of psalms at the very top of the psalms. There's a, uh, often a little heading, and you'll see it in these psalms. Like you look at uh, the heading of Psalm 42, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. This is not David. We spent the last couple weeks praying and learning the psalms of David, but this is a musician. This psalmist, who's unnamed, you know, longs to go back to the temple. Uh, verse 4 of 43. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Right? He's at the very least an instrumentalist. Uh, probably a lyre player, which is a stringed instrument. Closest we have to it is a guitar. So those of you who are against guitars in church, get over it. They've always been in church, you know, in one sense. And so we're told here that he also, in 42, verse 4, 
the second half, verse 4, the B section, how would I go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival? See, the temple in worship in Jerusalem would start with a procession like we do, you know, in communion services. You didn't just walk in, sit down, and chat until the music started. You know, the ministers would come in, and the musicians would come in with them playing their instruments. It was a rather glorious affair because you weren't coming in for a hoedown. You were coming in to worship the Lord who is. And so we don't know why, but this musician is in some kind of exile. And he says in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? I'm away from the house of God. I'm away from my ministry. I'm away from these things. And he continues in verse 6, My soul is cast down, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. This is in the far north of Israel. He's writing this. We don't know why he's there. But here's the issue. He's spiritually dry. Maybe he was captured. Maybe he was taken there. Uh, it's possible. Maybe he went there and now wishes that he hadn't. Maybe he had an obligation. Maybe he moved there and he now regrets it. We don't know why, but he's away from Jerusalem. And what he says three times is that he's in a state of spiritual dryness and darkness. And he likens himself to a deer panting after water. And we sing this song. We're going to sing it later on. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs after you, O God. But my friends, it's much direr and bleak than that song indicates. Maybe you're thinking of a deer who had just been on a chase or, or something like that and was looking around for water. Listen, deer are creatures of instinct. When they get thirsty, they drink. Deer do not pant unless there's a drought. Because the psalmist lived in a dry environment, he knows something about drought. When there's a drought, the vegetation dries up. The flowers dry up, roll up, become brown, and these poor animals die. They become parched, disoriented, and they die. And he's saying that that's the condition of his soul right now. He says he's in a state of spiritual darkness and dryness. He's cast down. He's depressed. He's in a kind of spiritual despair. And the reason, he says, my soul thirsts for God, the living God, is because God isn't a reality to him anymore. He's just a concept. He's not a living presence. presence. And as a result, he's experiencing in his soul something like a physical thirst. Now, if you're dying of thirst, you're not just thirsty. You're dying of thirst. It has at least two effects. First of all, you can't taste anything. Your tongue swells up. It's kind of ironic, you know. It, it, you can't put anything in your mouth. You can't even taste anything. And you're also, you're, secondly, your strength dries up. You can't even stand. 
You don't even have the strength to go get the water. So spiritually, to be away from God, spiritually, to find God, nothing but kind of an abstraction or a concept, to feel he's remote, to have no sense of the living presence of God at all, is to be in a spiritual darkness. Well, what are the signs of it in our lives today? Well, first of all, there's a tastelessness about your life. Your heart doesn't engage in the things of the Lord. Nothing tastes good to you. Your heart doesn't engage. Everything's gray and dull. Nothing softens your heart. Nothing sweetens your heart. And on the other hand, there's also a lack of energy for the things of God. Every day is a grind. It takes superhuman effort just to get through the day. It's a chore. This is spiritual dryness, and this is what the psalmist is talking about. He's clearly a believer. He was clearly a person who had experienced the presence of God. He was a ministry leader, but now he's in this condition. And if we want to understand this condition, we have to notice one more thing. As I mentioned a moment ago, this thing is very important, but we know it only by its absence. Here's the point. He's cut off from God, he's spiritually dry, he's in darkness, and yet there's not any mention of confession in Psalm 42 or 43. Isn't that interesting? He's doing a lot of things here, and we're going to look at those things, but Psalm 42 and 43 Essentially being all one psalm, there's a number of way of categorizing the psalms, and many of the psalms, almost a third of them, are psalms of lament, where the speaker cries, where are you, O God? Why are you away? And generally speaking, these laments tend to break into two categories. On the one hand, There are laments that have to do with why God is not answering our prayer. I've asked for protection. I've asked for military triumph. I've asked for this. I've asked for that. You're not answering, oh God, where are you? The other kind of lament is not so much as saying is where are you in terms of history. The other kind of lament is where are you in terms of my personal experience. Why are you so far from me? Why don't I feel you? Why don't I sense you? Why is my heart so dry? Why do you seem so far away? And in most of those cases, there is a confession and a repentance component. Psalm 6, Psalm 25, Psalm 32, which we discussed, Psalm 34, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 131. Just name a few. These are the penitential psalms. They're far from God, and the person's very, very dry, and God is not real, and so on. And in most cases, one of the things those psalms do is repent, but not here. So what does that tell us? It tells us something very, very important. It tells us whereas direct sin, a guilty conscience can be a reason, or one of the main reasons, while you feel far from God, it doesn't have to be. Of course, there are times when 
we will look at our lives when we're in these types of experiences and we'll ask the Lord to show us our sins of omission, the things we don't even know that we're committing. Of course, we know the things that are we're committing, but what about the things we're omitting? Oh, Lord, show me. And maybe the Lord does. But what if you go through that time and you don't see anything? That's what's here. He has no real clue. Now, I know some of you might be thinking of that and say, well, wait, Gene, you're always telling us to be, you know, the circle of confession and repentance, right? You've heard me say that a lot. Well, yeah, that's true. We do need to do that. You know, if someone comes in for pastoral counseling, it's one of the questions I typically ask them, are you violating your conscience? Is there something that the Lord is asking of you and you're refusing to go there? I call pastoral counseling, and we should do that. And that's typically our default setting a lot of times. But the reality is sometimes you can go through all the checklists and you can't find them. And that's what we have here. So whenever you're going to deal with a situation, you always have to look first to repent, yes. But friends, there are some times, as far as you can see, you're walking with the Lord, you're living for the Lord, you're doing everything you know what to do, and you're still in this dry time. And by way of a cautionary tale, you remember Job's friends? This is what Job was going through. You know, all of Job's friends said, look at the mess you're in, Job. Look how unhappy you are. You know, God's far away, you're a spiritual wreck. You've sinned. At the end of the book, Job has to beg God to spare their lives. I think God takes poor counseling very seriously. It's very easy for us to reduce everything to a sin. This is why. If you're not feeling right with God or something like that, here's a little checklist, right? You must be doing something wrong. Have you done this, this, and this? Well, guess what? This guy has done it all right. He's dry. He's cast away. And it's not because of his sin. So what is the cause? Well, as I look at 42 and 43, I see five E causes. I call them E because every, every one of them begin with the letter E. So let's look at these. Here are the causes of his dryness and see if these are the causes of some of your seasons of dryness. First is exile. What's the exile from? Well, well, he's, he's not at home. And it's not just that he's not at home. He's not with God's people. Because the temple in those days is very different from the churches of ours here in the West. Even leaving all that out, of course, you know, we wouldn't know that. He's not the one who is ignorant here. We are. We Western secular people and modern people are so individualistic that we forget something that he knows. And that is that you cannot have a rich and sustained sense of the presence of God if you are a Lone Ranger Christian. If you just have a little bit of your individual relationship with God... You have your little quiet time, and then you show up at church, 
where you like the preaching and you like the music and all that, and then you just leave. This guy says, I need the festive throng. I need the body. I need to be part of the corporate worship. He's exiled not just physically from Jerusalem. He's exiled also from God's people in Jerusalem. He's exiled from community. And he's experiencing community deprivation. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, said there were three really close friends. C.S. Lewis and his friends Ronald and Charles. They were all mutual friends. And he said that when Charles died, he found out to his surprise, he didn't have more of Ronald, he had less. Because Charles brought something out of Ronald that he couldn't. See, the genius of what Lewis says is, no one individual, even with a human person, can call the whole person out. It always takes a group of people to do that. Do you know that? You think you know Mr. X or Mrs. Y, but you really don't know him or her unless you know them in community. Unless you watch that person relate to other people. They're all certain aspects of that person because God has made us in his image and there's a richness about each and every one of us. You don't know another person unless you know that person in community, not just one-on-one. If that's true of human beings, how much more our Heavenly Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit? When I first, uh, in 1996, went to the Diocese of South Carolina, which, by the way, last week voted to join the Anglican Church in North America, so you now have all my permission to go to Camp St. Christopher, which is on Edisto Island, and you'll get a discount. Just tell them Gene Sherman sent you, you know? Because it is one of the most beautiful places in this world. As you look down the Edisto River, as it empties out with the pelicans flying over, it's just rich. But in that diocese, I was invited by my rector, Reed, to come with him. And I had heard my whole life how awful diocesan conventions were in Virginia. You know, because the clergy would talk about how awful they were to be a Bible-believing church in a liberal diocese. Not in South Carolina. There were two churches in that diocese that didn't believe what the bishop was doing and leading it. All other 60 were with him. It was great. And when that convention of some thousand people sang, it blew the roof off us. There was something powerful about being in a group that big that I had never experienced before in my whole life. And if you've ever been in a group like that worshiping, you never forget it. Why? Because something happens to you. Now, you might just want to reduce it to some sort of mass psychology. I get it. You know, well, it's just, it's great to hear that and be part of something big. Oh, no, 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 no. You better not reduce it to that. And what this guy is saying and what the Bible is saying is you meet God in different ways, and you see something about God you didn't see before because the 1,000 people call out of God things that you can't buy, do it by yourself. 
Three people did. Five people did. Not just white people, but black people. All different races. Not just little groups, but small groups. The fact of the matter is that each and every one of us cannot know God all by ourselves. And this man is experiencing that. And that's difficult in our suburban culture. We get our third of an acre plot, you know, we mow our grass, you know, and we live rather individualistic lives. But the fact of the matter is we can't do this by ourselves. And the reality is we have to focus on being not exiled in community. So hang around after the service, grab a cup of coffee. If you don't know somebody in the room, introduce yourself. Because he's exiled and can't wait to get back to the festive throng. The second thing is the enemies that he has. I don't know if you saw that, but in 43, excuse me, 42 in verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bone, my adversaries taunt me. What they say to me continually is, where is your God? You had anybody say that when the natural disaster has happened? The great tsunami in the Indian Ocean a few years back? Natural disasters, a plane just falls out of the sky. Friends, there are things that are mysteries in our life that we can't explain or can't control. And the Bible talks about Satan hurling his fiery darts into our hearts. And people will hurl them at you as well. And they will say, where is your God in this? And we don't have an answer. Any sensitive heart is going to find it very difficult to rejoice in a situation like that. But what we do is we look at the cross and recognize no matter how bad it gets, we have a God who loves us that much. So one of the causes is his exile. One of the causes is his enemies. Another cause is his employment. And by employment, I mean, he says, I used to lead the festive throng. Notice how I said before, one of the reasons we get spiritually dry and desolate is a lack of input, right? That means we don't have relationships in which people are teaching us. We don't have people counseling us and helping us in our walk with Christ. And we have a lack of input. But another reason for spiritual dryness is our lack of output. Think about the person who only eats and never exercises. Some of you might be saying, well, I'm not far from that. Physically, it won't take long before you're going to the doctor. And he's saying there's something out of whack here. Well, the same thing happens to us spiritually. When we're not giving out of ourselves either. When we're not serving the Lord, we get spiritually dry. Next cause, the issue, is eating. The guy says, my tears have been my food day and night. You know what that means? He's not eating. He's lost his appetite. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a doctor before he became a preacher, said, does someone hold the view that as long as you're a Christian, it does not matter what the condition of your body is? Well, you will soon be disillusioned if you believe that. Physical conditions play their part in all this. It's very difficult to draw the line. In other words, there are certain physical ailments which tend to promote depression. 
that great preacher in the 19th century, Charles Hatton Spurgeon, died at 53, dealt with gout, and we believe because of that condition is what causes early death. He said this about physical health. The greatest and best Christians, when they are physically weak, are more prone to an attack of spiritual depression than at any other time. And there are great illustrations of this in the scriptures. If you recognize, however, that the physical may be partly responsible for your spiritual and make allowances for that, you'll be better able to deal with the spiritual. So what's he saying? Very easy for us when we see a person spiritually cast down away from God, and there might be some kind of physical part for that reason that the person feels that way. It can be very complicated. So there's the eating. And the final one is enigma. In other words, mystery. What do I mean by that? Well, he was exiled from community. There's no sin. Sometimes there's no lack of spiritual disciplines. Sometimes there's no spiritual loneliness, which is the first one that I talked about earlier tonight, today rather. Sometimes there's no accusation. Sometimes there's no underemployment. Sometimes there's no physical problem. It's just a dry time. God never takes his arms out from underneath you. But there are times when he doesn't let you feel his arms underneath you. Why? The psalmist understands. So what does the psalmist do? Look at Psalm 42, verse 5. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Turn to verse 11 of 42. What does it say? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, for my salvation and my God. Keep going down. 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? It's a refrain. And here's the answer, friends. Here is what it's all about. When we're in times of spiritual dryness, no matter the cause, whether we know it or not, the solution for us is to look at verses 5, 11, and 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? The psalmist doesn't look at his condition and say, oh, I'm walking through this situation. He looks at the situation and talks to it. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Is telling the situation. He's not just going to the flow. He's saying, no, you listen to me. Not the other way around. Secondly, he puts his hope in God. Why does he do that? I'll tell you why he does that. Why has God put you all through these dry times? What do all the great pastors and preachers, the heroes that I mentioned, talk about all the time? Because God is trying to show you many of the things like fellowship, many of the things like ministry, even the good things that we do in the kingdom may be far too important to you. So, for example, relationships are very important, but why is it that always some of our best people move? 
Why? It happens all the time. Mike and Jill Drake. Remember the Drakes, those of you who were here about seven years ago? Jill comes to faith in Christ. God just ignites her. She gives a testimony at the one of our first women's luncheons. And he gets a job offer in Chicago. I said, oh, Chicago's not that great. <laughs> Didn't want him to go. Why do these things happen? Well, maybe because God wants us to know that he needs to be the source of our love, not others, not relationships, not all the attractive people that are around us that we think are just great. What's the real source of our love? Is it the people or is it Jesus? You see, the psalmist realizes one of the reasons he's desolate is because many of these things are gone and he doesn't have answers. Boy, don't you feel great about God when some non-Christian asks you a question and you give them the answer and the non-Christian says, wow, that was great. When they come and say, where is your God and you don't have an answer? Your spiritual coherence is gone. Your strength is gone when all the things are gone. Really, then comes the question, what are we relying on? What really is our salvation? Some of us might have even been very active in ministry, and somehow it's gone. Just like the temple singer. You don't have the same kind of joy in the Lord. Well, to some degree, your, your joy in the Lord was your ego. Psalmist comes and says, put your hope in God. Look at your hopes. Analyze your hopes. And yet, I will praise him. I shall, again, praise him. You know what that means? First of all, it means I'm going home. I'm going to restore the things that weren't there. I'm going to find fellowship. I'm going to find the church. I'm going to do the things that help me grow in the Lord. I'm going to restore the things that have been missing in my life. Secondly, I will yet praise him. I will again praise the Lord must mean I'm going to pray. My soul is cast down before me. Therefore, I will remember you. He also says, by the day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. He decides that in spite of the fact that God is absolutely gone experientially from his life, there's more reason to pray, not less. There's more reason to be disciplined in my prayer life, not less. He doesn't just pray, he remembers, and that's a whole other sermon. In the Psalms, the word remember means more than just pray, it means meditation. There's informative reading of the Bible, and then there's formative reading of the Bible. There's informative, where you're reading it to learn, you're reading it to study, you're reading it, and then there's formative, where you're letting that text speak to you. You're letting it form you. And you're letting it take charge. It's a slow reading, it's a reflective reading. It's praying and thinking, reflecting, remembering who he is. Do you do that day and night, he says. I know what most of us do. When we start to feel far from God, we just want to pull back and say, why do it? I don't get anything out of it. 
is a very American thing to do. John Newton said, if you're getting nothing from going to the throne of grace, I can assure you, you will get nothing from staying away. You remember when Philip came to Jesus, and Jesus says to Philip, are you going to go away too, Philip? And Philip says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. What's your alternative to remembering him? What's your alternative to praying to him? Day and night. This guy says, because God is far away, I'm not just going to pray in general. I'm not just going to go through my prayer list. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to let the word speak to me. I'm going to pour out my soul. And so if you're far from God this morning, I want to encourage you, day and night, to go back to chapter 42, which we sing. We're going to sing it later on. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Read verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 42, and you pray those words back to the Lord. And let it form you. As much as you can, say, Lord, help me to want you. Let some of these words I'm about to say to you be words that to some degree actually mean I'll remember you, O Lord. And finally, I think when he says, again, I will praise him, that he's actually remembering that God is with him. Because we all have times in our lives where we know in our minds that underneath are the everlasting arms of God, but it certainly doesn't feel that way. But you know, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hands. He says, my sheep know my voice, and they come to me. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The psalmist says, my father and mother might forsake me, but the Lord will lift me up. That's why I always get a little nervous when parents hand me the baby before an infant baptism, you know, that I might drop the kid, you know, and ruin him for life. I dropped Rebecca. Yeah, it was awful. We were walking out of a party, me and Kimmy were, and we were just, we were new parents, and I hit an ice patch, and I ripped and fell down, and all 180 pounds of me fell on her. She's all right. (laughs) But I felt awful. But you know what? Whenever I go to Psalm 27, it says, If my father and my mother forsake me, you see everybody, but God will let you down, but your heavenly father will never let you down. God will never drop you. God's arms will never fail you, but believe it or not, you know why? Because there's one person who God's arms did fail. Jesus Christ did not sin, but he truly was deserted. We just feel deserted. He was truly deserted. And because Jesus was truly deserted, you and I never will be. That's the reason why the psalmist can say, I will again praise him. You can do that right now and say, Lord Jesus, I thirst. Do you? My soul thirsts for God, the living God. In our gospel reading today that Bob read, the woman at the well, Jesus said, I can give you living water. Real, refreshing, running water for your soul. 
The reason you know someday you will praise him, someday you will drink that water, you will not starve, you will not die of thirst, is because Jesus Christ said, I thirst, and all he got on the cross was vinegar. If you say to the Lord, I thirst, I can tell you this, you won't get vinegar. You won't get gall. Because Jesus was truly deserted. Our desertions are only temporary trials. Are you thirsty today? Are you hungry today? You know, we're not taking communion today, but whenever we do, and we keep the table up for a reason. It reminds us that this is the place where in Christ you are always welcome. In a couple weeks we'll receive it. And the bread and wine, it represents the fact that anybody who comes to the table, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be great. You don't have to have it all together. You, you might as well feel as far away from God as the psalmist is feeling right now. That doesn't mean you shouldn't come. Say, I thirst, and you will never get vinegar. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you and pray that now as we, we go into our time of prayer, that you would really meet us. And whenever we partake of your table, Lord, we would meet you as well. We thank you that you welcome us to the table, which are symbols of the fact that you want intimate fellowship with us. And we thank you, Lord, for this psalm. It shows us you want us to come to you, and you will never let us go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.